0: I li- I'm, I'm delighted to introduce Ann Carpenter. Ann is a biologist, and will be enlightening us today on extracting information from images, to tackle basic biological questions, and world health problems. And I think digital photography is also involved. Mm-hmm.
1: In mm-hmm. That's Great. exactly Thanks right. Much, Great. Well, thank you. It's um, really a pleasure to be here and speak to this audience. I'll um, we'll be switching gears now and talking. Um, a bit behind the scenes of what some of the researchers that I work with are doing to try to combat disease at the, the earliest stages, so... Oh, louder. Is, it's just recording? Okay, so I will, speak, I will speak much more loudly and probably slower than, than usual, so that we can hear it clearly. I direct the imaging platform at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. And I work with a group of computer scientists, about 10 of us. Um, I'm the biologist who leads the group and um, picks interesting projects in biology, many of which have um, have to do with some world health problems. And so I'll I'll be telling you a bit about our work. Our work comes down to using images of cells. Most of the experiments that we do involve microscopy of some sort. And these are some fluorescence images of cells growing here. And I just want to point out the beauty that's, that's in an individual cell. I guess there was a, the talk earlier today about the beauty of the cosmos. Um, I, I get the same sorts of feelings, Um, Looking at images of cells. There's so much information that's present in a single picture uh, that tells you about what is this biological sample uh, doing, what is it looking like, what are the structures that are inside, how is it responding to a particular disease treatment, how is it responding to a particular chemical treatment that might be useful for curing a disease. so as a case study of how do we use these images to do anything useful, I thought I, it's instead of explaining the technology behind what I do, I thought I would just explain um, one case study, and I think you'll get the picture of why this technology is so powerful and why I'm so excited to be working on it. I'm working on a project right now um, in collaboration with um, it, researchers who work on infectious disease at the Broad Institute. It's a project that involves tuberculosis, which is, a, a, in fact, a growing health problem. Um, not just because of tuberculosis itself, but because of some latent forms that have become antibiotic resistant and um, can remain fairly um, latent in an individual and infect others and, and become quite resistant. And so this is a growing health problem of, um, of significant interest a- across the world. And in order to explain the new methods that we're using to try to come up with new treatments for this particular disease, it's helpful for me to explain the old fashioned way of finding antibiotics. So that's what I'm gonna explain here first. The traditional approach that a pharmaceutical company might take to find antibiotics is to um, put individual bacteria, so tuberculosis is caused by a bacterium, put it into individual wells of a multi-well plate. That's like a, a number of different test tubes or petri dishes, except much smaller. And then, the usually pharmaceutical companies have a million different test chemicals that their chemists have created over time, and they think, well, we hope that one or two of these might actually cure this particular um, disease. So they'll pick a million of their test chemicals, they'll put each one into a different well, and then they'll test them and see out of all those millions and millions of wells, can they find any wells that the bacteria have died in, right? So they'll have some method to measure the amount of bacteria that are remaining in each of the little test tubes, and they'll look for the wells where the bacteria died. So this is a fantastic method and has been used in the past quite successfully, but it's most useful, it's certainly useful for finding antibiotic soaps, for example, because you're trying to kill bacteria growing in isolation in a surface, but it's not as helpful for, for it, You can't f- use this method to find, for example, chemicals that would boost the human cells' immunity to a disease. It's, it's only really trying to kill the bacteria in isolation. So it's not a very physiological system. So the uh, an alternate approach to find antibiotics, which would be quite effective, is if we could take a lot of little girls and if we could um, treat them with a million different test chemicals, each one in a different little girl, we could look for which ones have no bacteria left in them, which might be kind of an expensive test. so we could just wait a while and see you know which one has survived the infection by tuberculosis so um, because because scientists in general don't like being evil scientists, um, we came up with an alternate alternate approach and it 's sort of halfway in between so we don 't want to just find chemicals that can kill bacteria in isolation, but we also don 't want to to test um, them in little human beings. So, there's a postdoc, Sarah Stanley, who's in Deb Hung's lab at the um, at the Broad, and they came up with this method. And it's actually a very s- a simple approach um, to understand. These are human cells, um, actually human nuclei, that are blue here. And you infect them with the tuber- with tuberculosis bacteria, which in this case have been engineered to be fluorescently green. And without the drug, the bacteria will take over the, the human cell cultures. And if you add a, an appropriate antibiotic, then the tuberculosis will die. And so this lets us find things that, first of all, kill the bacteria, but also, um, at the same time, we can tell whether it's also killing the human cells. That's kind of an important feature in an antibiotic. But we can also find ke- um, chemicals that work by a different mechanism of action. In other words, we can find chemicals that are able to uh, Boost th- that prevent the infection process itself. They don't necessarily even have to kill the bacteria as long as it prevents the infection and the propagation of the bacteria. So this was the idea for the project, and so now we put bacteria and human cells into the individual test tubes. Uh, we test, so we, we're not a pharmaceutical company, we're an academic, non-profit uh, research institute, so we only are going to test about 50,000 chemicals, um, and those chemicals will go one into each different well, and we'll be looking for... The one sample that the bacteria have not propagated themselves, um, and for example, we'll be looking for that sample. Out of the many that where the bacteria overtake the population, we're looking for the one where the bacteria have been kept at bay by the chemical. So whatever that chemical is, then we have chemists at the institute who can follow it up and maybe take it into clinical trials. So, the problem with this approach is that it involves a lot of automated microscope images. So, it is lucky that we have robotic microscopes. These microscopes run 24 hours a day and they can collect, um, uh, on the order of 10,000 to 100,000 images every single day. And the problem is we do not have that many postdocs to go and look at the images and, um, and figure out uh, which ones are going to be the samples of interest. So, this is a fairly, um, this outcome that we're looking for, bacteria or no bacteria, and also are the human cells healthy or not healthy, it's a pretty simple readout. And so we, what we do is we take the images from the robotic microscope, and this is where my group comes into play with the, um, the digital images. The robot collects the di- digital images by microscopy, and then our, we write software that is able to find the tuberculosis, find the human cells, and count how many bacteria are present per cell, and also measure the, the general health of the human cells. So how does how does that look? I won't tell you how it works exactly, but I'll, I'll show you how it looks. Um, we run some mathematical algorithms and filters on the images, and those um, are able to identify each individual cell, and they're able to identify um, each individual bacterial blob, and um and count up the mass of, of bacteria in each sample. And this is Martha Vokes who worked on this project in my group. So this project is um is currently underway. We've screened um so far just I think only a thousand chemicals and found a couple of them so far that look interesting. Um and so we're we're following up on those and also expanding to a much larger set of chemicals to try to find uh chemicals that might be good treatments for this disease. If we're really lucky, um we we typically screen um not just a random set of chemicals. But usually, we choose a set of chemicals at first that are FDA-approved. So if we find an FDA-approved drug that, are, that seems to be effective in a particular um, disease or, or infection, then it's much quicker to get it through clinical trials. So that's always our goal is to find something that's, um, that's already had a lot of the, the work done in it. So. Uh, so the software that we wrote to do this project, but also um, at, we've got at least 50 projects going on right now in a, a number of different areas, is called Cell Profiler. It's an open source project, and uh we started, we launched it about two years ago. You can download it online, and there's examples online so you can see how it works. Um, this is what it looks like, and um you it's basically modular. You mix and match the kinds of um algorithms that you need to run on the images in order to measure whatever it is you need to measure in the images. And what it looks like is something like this, that it it moves along, and as it's going, it's finding the individual cells, it's finding, in the example I showed, the bacteria, it's making all these measurements, and at the end of the experiment, if you've had 50,000 chemicals that you've tested, you'll get uh, a database full of 50,000 of the images and all the appropriate measurements that have been made, To and then the, the statisticians in your group can take a look at all those measurements. We've used the software on um, not just this infection project that I showed you, but a number of different projects in a number of different areas. And I, I put this up to, to demonstrate um, how science has really been changing, uh, basic science has been changing um, quite dramatically, I would say, in biology over the past five or 10 years. Um, It's become much more collaborative. The technologies that are involved are so diverse that, for the project I explained, you need um, somebody who can run a robotic microscope, so you've got engineers, you've got computer scientists for sure who are shuffling all this data one, one way or the other. You need statisticians, you need the biologist who actually knows about the infectious disease to begin with. Um, And then you need chemists to follow up on the the drugs that are found. And so this becomes a very large project team and is becoming quite common in biology rather than having a single lab studying a single um, small niche of the world. uh, We have to get together a lot more often. And that's exemplified here with other projects going on. A lot of projects we do are related to different forms of cancer. Um, A leukemia project we screened, um, uh, I'm not sure how many chemicals, but we found a really good one that looks like it may be effective for AMKL. and then um, project, other projects in, in oncology at basic and more clinically advanced um, stages. And uh, the software is being used not just by the people we're directly working with, but the people around the world. So there's a gigantic blob in the Boston area, because there's so much life sciences research going on there, but there's projects going on around the world. and. Um, you can see that in certain parts of the world, there's not so much work going on. Of course, not everywhere has robotic microscopes. Not everywhere needs a fancy system to look at images, because they don't have a way of producing images in very high throughput, in very quick ways. But um, there are some pro- projects that can be done in an undergraduate laboratory or in a much smaller scale, and examples of that, um, which some of you may remember from lab classes, would be to grow yeast patches on an auger plate, for example, there's a picture of one of those. And the traditional method would be to score those as plus equals growth and minus equals no growth. Um, but if you can analyze the images automatically, you can get quantitative information from each individual spot, and um, it allows you to do um, experiments that are, that, well, it's certainly quicker and and um, and more convenient to get numerical measurements, but it can also be more accurate if you have many replicates of an experiment. Um, and as well, I'm guessing, um, h- who, how many people in the audience have ever counted yeast growing on plates, colony counting of any sort? Yeah, actually, pretty good percentage. Um, so this is another thing where, basically, to do experiments like this in an undergrad lab or in the middle of Africa, all you need is um, some auger, some petri dishes, and a flatbed scanner. You throw it on a flatbed scanner, or just use a digital camera to take the pictures. And then you can use the open source software to identify all the, the colonies and count them and measure their various properties. Um, so that's uh, examples of some of the um, experiments that can be done even if you don't have a robot microscope at your at your disposal. Okay, so the the last bit I want to explain is um, the cutting edge work that we've been doing just in the past um, year or so, and um, I, I won't I won't explain the underpinnings of it, but it's really just it's really just fun. It's really an interesting approach that involves um, algorithms from machine learning applied to these more complicated biological experiments. So I'll explain what it does. So Um, I showed you the case study where we're looking for how many tuberculosis are infecting a certain cell. But most of the projects that we um, need to do are more complicated than that. We're not just counting cells or counting bacteria. We want to measure how many of the cells have a very subtle appearance that looks cancerous versus non-cancerous. And it's it's so subtle that it's really hard to figure out, well, what would you measure in these images to even tell whether it's um, cancerous or not cancerous? And what you really need is the human visual system because uh, the human brain is uh, phenomenal in its ability to look at a picture and characterize it and, and conclude something about it. And so, what, what we have here is a beautiful melding of computer science and the human brain um, to solve some of these problems. So, how does it work? The computer gives the biologist, it starts out with just 10 or 15 different cells, and the biologist looks at the pictures of the cells and decides which ones look like what she's looking for and which ones are not what she's looking for. So for every cell that runs past her eyeballs, she decides whether it's a yes or a no. And the yes or no can depend on, um, it's whatever she's looking for, it's cancerous or not cancerous. It's using, using her understanding of a particular biological problem, she knows whether something is interesting or not interesting. So she sorts a few dozen cells, and the computer is looking not at the picture itself, the computer is looking at this little um, what I have shown schematically here as a barcode. That barcode is really the measurements that have been extracted for each individual cell. So, the computer makes hundreds of measurements of every cell, some of which it does not, you know, we do not even know what the measurements mean. It is measuring the size and the shape and the colors and the textures and everything else. The computer starts to get a sense from looking at those barcodes, you know, all those negative, all those no cells have something in common. And all those yes cells have something else in common. And by looking at all the different measurements together, uh, it starts to get a sense of what it thinks that the biologist is looking for. So then the computer sends another dozen cells past the biologist and says, okay, I think here's ten more yeses. What do you think? And then the biologist says, yeah, okay, ten of those are good, but two of those are not good. And then the computer develops a better rule, and over time it gets really good at it. So that's kind of how it works, and this is what it looks like. And it's, it's really incredibly fun. It's a sort of a video game that you're playing with the computer here. Um, so, that those are the cells that are ready to be classified, and now the biologist is sorting the cells that have the sort of flat green shape versus the more round green shape or no green at all. So all those little flat guys are going over there, and the roundish blank ones are going over there. So, in this case, we've sorted dozens of each, um, there, you can't see the line down the middle, but a dozen p- yeses and a dozen, uh, hundreds of yeses and hundreds of noes. And then we train the computer, and um, within about two minutes or so, the computer says, I think I know what you're looking for, are these more of what you're looking for? And if you disagree, you can keep sorting and, and go around again. Um, but ultimately, once the computer has learned what it is that you're looking for, using the machine learning, uh, now you can score the entire experiment. So now that the computer can go through the 100,000 experim- images that your um, robot microscope has collected and tell you which of those chemical samples that have, that are associated with each image are producing cells that have that appearance. And so that, for example, is one of the samples that um, that has a lot of those little flat bar-shaped cells in it. So we've been using this approach, this more um, fancy approach, for a number of different projects. Again, many of them do, to do with cancer. Um, uh, breast cancer, glioblastoma, leukemias. And um, again, working with just dozens of different people um, across the Boston area, and in some cases, uh, across the country. We are now, um, in the next stages, we're just getting started, working on different, unusual types of um, things, not even just cells, but um, whole organisms, like C. elegans, um, zebrafish, and, um, and individual yeast um, in time-lapse movies are some of the things that we're working on next. And I specifically want to draw out the, the C. elegans uh, identification. It's a tiny little worm, um, it's about a millimeter long, and it has about a thousand cells that constitute it. And that's allowing, uh, allowed us to, um, just this past year, conduct an experiment that's another alternate approach to find antibiotics. So we, um, we explored bacteria in a dish. We explored little girls. We explored um, the human cells growing in the dish. And this last one that I want to ex- show to you is a project we just finished where we screened 50,000 chemicals. Um, using bacteria with whole worms that are in individual wells. So the downside is that they're worms and they're not humans. Um, the upside is that they're a whole organism that actually has something of an immune system. So we can find not just the chemicals that um, kill the bacteria and prevent infection, but also chemicals that boost the animal's immune system um, and in order to prevent infection. So that would be a really fantastic kind of uh, something like a vaccine. And so um, we... Tested these 53,000 different chemicals, each one in a different um, in a different test tube with uh, with different worms, and the thing and you're gonna laugh, but this is so that's what worms look like when they're happy. Um, this is what they look like after you've infected them. Um, in this case, with Enterococcus fecalis. Um, so, most of them you can see have taken on this basic rigor mortis. Um, and it's so, it's so absurd to me that they actually do this, but when the, when the worms are dead, they're straight as a stick. Um, so in this, in this, um, in this example, this is the one chemical that has allowed this worm to survive. All the others have died and, you know, kind of taken on the not so happy straight shape. Um, but that guy's still swimming around just happy as a clam. So whatever that chemical is, is a really good one for preventing this disease. Um, and so in this case, as I said, we're looking for um, inhibitors of, uh, or uh, treatments for enterococcus fecalis infection, which is, um, it, it specifically it affects immunocompromised patients, um, so it's important in HIV treatment. So there's an example of what the, the image looks like. You have a, a well full of worms. You can see most of them are dead, because they're pretty straight, um, and the, the automatic automated image processing that we're developing is able to determine whether a worm is alive or dead, or sort of half (laughs) alive or half dead. Sometimes it's hard to tell because they're a little bit curvy. Um, So you can see the result of the image processing is trying to figure out, um, count up how many are alive or dead. We're looking for chemicals that allow the worms to survive um, this infection. Uh, we're we're focused not, not just on infectious disease, but a lot of other projects. I showed many that were involved with cancer. This is a project related a little bit more to diabetes and metabolism, where, again, in the worm, you can study things like feeding, which you certainly can't study with human cells in dishes. Um, so here's an experiment that we're working on getting started, um, having to do with uh, the accumulation of fat in the worm. So if this particular stain lights up the fat deposits set a cell that an individual worm has. And so with certain chemicals, their appetite is suppressed, and with others, it's um, enhanced. So we're looking looking to do experiments with those guys. So that's that concludes my talk. The work that I presented, of course, is the dozens of collaborators, biology collaborators that we worked with. But as well now, we have about 10 people in my group at the institute that have worked together to make these projects happen. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Question? Yeah, I can. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. your automatic uh, are you using neural net software has the technology
1: gone beyond that? Oh, that's a good question. So the question is whether we're using neural networks as part of the machine learning. We're not using that particular machine learning algorithm, but not, because it's, not necessarily because it's outdated, but just because um, there are methods that work more quickly in this particular context. Because we're doing a certain type of sorting, it just mo- works more quickly to use uh, an algorithm called gentle boosting. So that's what we're using in this case. Gentle boosting. Yeah.
0: Is the Broad Institute uh, funded by Eli Broad
1: of LA? Yeah. So it's, it's actually pronounced Broad, but you're exactly right. So Eli and Edith Broad um, made a lot of money in development of um, of housing um, and donated a substantial sum of their fortune to to found the institute. So it's it's really a m- remarkable um, amount of money that they've uh, donated to start the the institute. Actually. Uh, I believe it's more than uh, 80 or 90% of the um, money that we spend is actually through NIH grants. So we're actually very much like any other academic institute. Um, But the money that they gave was enough to build the building and get a lot of seed projects started, including my own group. So we're very grateful for for their support.
0: It would seem that the danger of such a powerful technology would be that uh, you would have you could check 10,000 know different chemicals, but it seems to me that you might be able to think and that, that you may be over testing you know, then even the cost of your testing is not trivial. I mean it would seem yeah. like say, okay, let's really look at a thousand that really look like they're you understand what I'm saying? yeah, is that,
1: is yeah that danger of your Oh yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the pharmaceutical industry, this whole screening approach of uh, you know. So, there's two approaches to drug discovery. One is to study the proteins that are involved in the mechanism of the disease of one sort or another, study the exact um, form of the tuberculosis bacterium, for example, and try to design a chemical that fits the pocket and that sort of thing. And that's been, um, that's certainly been very useful in the, in, in, the history of pharmaceuticals. The other, the other approach has come in more into play in the last about tw- 15 to 20 years ago, um, the screening approach, which says, we don't even know what we're looking for. Let's just test everything we can get our hands on and hope that we're lucky and we hit out. And it's still an open question what which of those approaches is quote-unquote better. Um, I think in the, the test-everything approach is very unbiased. So you're more likely to find things that are unexpected and um, serendipitous. Um, so it has an advantage. There that you don't necessarily need to understand the whole mechanism of the disease, but you still might find something that can that can cure it. Um, so that, that's an upside to that approach. Um, the downside is you either get something or you don't. And if you don't get anything, it hasn't you haven't learned anything from the experiment. So uh, both approaches are still very widely in use. And a lot of times you might use screening first to even get a sense of what the mechanism of the disease is, and then um, that gives you some clues that help you design things a little bit better. So almost certainly any of the chemicals that we get out of our experiments will be um, developed by the chemists at the institute to be more more precisely designed to fit what they, the the target that they need to target.
0: rate of false positives or false negatives that you can And secondly, just wondered uh, with an institute like this with uh, that's a biological piece, what, what is the environment or atmosphere attitude towards your history?
1: Ah, okay. So um, I'll, I'll answer the easy question first, which is the false positive, false negative rate. Um, actually, so the uh, it completely depends on the experiment. How, how often is it going to be that you get Something that it seems like the worms are all alive and happy, but then you repeat the test and somehow the chemical doesn 't work anymore, or anything like that um, it's hard it 's hard to say, um, but I guess I can just say on on av- we always what we always do is we test the fifty thousand and then we take usually the top hundred or something and do a retest of them and another retest and go down the line and I would say that it 's usually more than fifty percent of the chemicals repeat in the f- Follow up experiments, so unfortunately that means 50, usually something like fifty percent of them looked like they were good at the f- at first shot, but then didn 't really um, didn 't follow up very well but
0: that
1: means your it was just oh test right right yeah, so actually for the image algorithm per se. oh so that 's a great so that 's much easier so the part my step in the process actually has um, so we just did an, a, a test where we had no false negatives and um, Two false positives out of 300, uh, 360, you know, samples. So it's extremely that that step of it is extremely accurate. Unfortunately, the the pipetting and the sample preparation and the microscopy and everything else can be kind of hit or miss. So it 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 makes the the experiments difficult. So as far as um, Response to Christian faith. Um, I think it, it's a great question. I, most of so my group. Um, I think there's one other Christian that's in my group, um, and we haven't actually talked about how our faith affects our work um, directly because he's kind of new in the group. Um, I would say that overall, um, definitely my Christian faith, faith motivates what I do and motivates. Um, Doing the work excellently in an ethical way and in a, a scientifically conscientious way, um, but it's something that I, that I'm not very vocal about yet in my work environment. And uh, this came up in Bill Newsom's session yesterday. How how exactly does one go about in an intensely academic um, environment where most people aren't talking about their personal lives at all? I don't even know if people that I work with have kids or not, much less you know what their faith their faith system is. So. Um, it's a, a bit of a strange environment. It's not the most natural environment to, to start chatting about faith. Um, so I'd say overall, it hasn't come up much, except for when Francis Collins comes to town. And, and um, I, around the, t- the table at my institute, um, I h- half overheard a conversation of some, uh, some of my colleagues saying, "Oh, Francis Collins is coming. You know, I hear he's a Christian. I think he might be, he might be born again. I don't. You know, what does that even mean?" And um, so every once in a while, a, a little. Snippet will come up, but it's it's actually pretty rare that conversations arise where I have the opportunity to talk about it.
0: I think Francis Collins is an ASA member, is he not? That's right. Yep. Are you an ASA member? Yep. Well, there you go. We have another recruit coming from her lab shortly. <laughs> I just have one other thing, sure. uh, maybe even another one after that. Um, you, you allude in your abstract to potential applications to the developing world. Yep. Yeah. Um, could you maybe touch on that a bit? Is when you started talking about worms, I kept thinking of. Various parasitic oh,
1: infestations. Yep, for that yep. Um, so, so you know, certainly the a lot of the diseases we work on are neglected diseases because the, you know the pharmaceutical companies have a lot of the big big diseases covered, but a lot of, that are neglected um, tend to be. So we're working on malaria and tuberculosis. So that's one connection. Um, we have we don't have any other projects working on um, parasitic worms per se, um, but the technology that we're that. I showed you could easily be, be applicable to those kinds of experiments. We just don't have any underway right now. Um, the other project that I'm really excited about, but it's, it's been slow getting going, is, um, I don't know if you've seen in toy stores lately, you can buy little microscopes that are not more than 100 bucks or so. They're not that expensive just to hook up to your laptop and look, have your grandkids look at little, uh, little samples of whatever they happen to find. Um, I'm wor- working with a researcher who is um, adapting those that sort of idea, except making it as high-end as possible, but as cheap as possible. So he's developed something that is going to cost, um, it costs less than a thousand dollars to manufacture it, but it's a microscope that's suitable for um, diagnosis of various diseases sort of in the field. So right now, a lot of times, uh flow cytometry is the technology that's used in um in the developing world to diagnose um and monitor HIV treatment, for example, and a number of different types of infection. And uh the problem with flow cytometry is each instrument is about fifty thousand um, dollars, maybe twenty thousand if you're if you get a lower end one. Um but it requires a lot of pure water to be operated, which is sometimes hard to come by. So he's working on getting a, a less than a thousand dollar microscope that hooks up to a super cheap laptop, and if we um and we're working on the image analysis for that so that they can have open source software, really cheap laptop, the one laptop for child um, laptops, and this really cheap microscope to be to serve as a diagnostic. So that's one of the other projects that we've been working on lately.
0: That's great. I do a course in ethics and uh, global research, and this would be a technology to follow very carefully and closely as far mm-hmm. as its application in uh, various developing world settings that I'm familiar with. Yeah. I think we have maybe one time for a quick question. Please. Yeah. Uh, for a, a small undergraduate college that has Yep. is there a way we could plug into that
1: program? Yep, absolutely. So a lot of, um, we, we developed it for um, images that come from robotic microscopes, but it turns out that um, I think probably more, way more than 50% of the users that download the software from online are doing experiments that um, are just from regular, regular microscopes. So that's definitely a possibility.
0: Thank you very much, Daniel.